t-shirt said Virginia is for lovers Had a Bible in his left hand and a bottle in the other He said all you're really given is the sunshine in your name We both started laughing when the sky started to rain Get along on down the road Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Alright, Brendan, what are we doing here today? <laughs> so, this was an idea that I had almost two years ago now. And I was sitting in North Dakota at the time, um, working on a U.S. Senate campaign, and living totally on my own, mine at North Dakota. And I emailed you and Devin, uh, and said, hey, I have this idea. I think we should start a podcast. And I got just radio sounds. Nothing. And I'm sitting in North Dakota by myself, and I get no, no response at all. So got off to a, a real hot start there. Um, but the reason why I had the idea originally is that, you know, I was very, like, heavy into the political world at the time. And kind of the big podcasts out there were, like, you know, the Ben Shapiro show and Pod Save America. And what I was seeing and hearing was... You know, the, the wings of the party had their own podcast, right? And if you're conservative, you go listen to Ben Shapiro and you're like, you're snap along. Like, that's yeah, you that's get indoctrinated. It. Absolutely. And it's the same thing on the other side, right? And so uh, I was kind of thinking that there's not, at least that I wasn't aware of, uh, like a podcast in the middle for people who don't fall, you know, heavily on the right or heavily on the left. And, you know, people that want to find some type of common ground and like to your what you just your point of like not just you know be in an echo chamber and hear someone preach what they already believe right back to them um so that was my original idea like i said total radio silence it went nowhere i, I eventually came back home you guys still weren't into it fine <laughs> thought the idea was dead and then this summer you came back and said hey that podcast idea i want to do it yeah i mean it's 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 a funny thing because when you first brought it up, all I could think about is just adding another voice to the screaming matches and basically just like out into the void. But as we've talked over the years, I think the main thing that I appreciate about our friendship, even though I disagree with a lot of things that you say, um, has been that, that we can look at each other's points of view critically, and that helps us look at our own points of view critically. And I'll say, typically after a conversation, um, you know, I come to a point where I feel like I understand my own rationale for something a little bit better, even if I don't change your mind, and even if you don't change my mind, um, it helps me get a fuller view of the picture. And I mean, at the end of the day, I think that both of us enjoy arguments and because we can't do this at like 3am drunk anymore, right. it's a little bit, it seems like a podcast is the next best thing. Not that we couldn't do that anymore, but I, I know you're aging out of that, but uh, 
Yeah, I, that was part of it, right? Is so that we often have these conversations, these debates, these arguments over, you know, after having had too much to drink. But it never, I, and to your point, it, it's never spilled into, I think, like legitimate anger, right? Which it, I, I think is cool, right? Like we totally disagree about a lot of things and we'll get into a lot of that. But, you know, we finally, we eventually either agree to disagree or maybe come around a little bit more to one side. And to your point, like, it's both seeing the other side better, but also seeing your side better and differently. And, you know, that's always a good skill just to, you know, even like coaching debate and stuff. It's, you know, you need to understand the other side's points in order to more fully express your side and right. understand your side. Right. Right. And I still think that, you know, as we've gotten even worse since 2018 in terms of society and media and what we hear, I still believe that you know, most people are between like the 80 and 20 percentile. Like I, I have to believe that. Um, and I think that we are very much there, right? I'm center right, you're center left. But I would say we're even in like the 40 to 60 kind of percentile. I, f- I feel like we're very much in the middle. Um, I suppose other people might think differently. But, <laughs> all right. uh, but I, I think that there is a space for this. And um, I'm hopeful that we can have some of the conversations that won't devolve into kind of shouting and nonsense that you know, dominate all of the traditional media spaces that we hear today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 100%. I, I think it's like a, a, a clever meme or wh- whatever the thing is on Instagram to show that, that like, hey, you know, 49% of people, eligible voters, just didn't vote. And so um, when I think about that a lot, I think a lot of people point strictly to apathy, but I think a lot of people are also pointing to the fact that like there are just few voices that seem to represent rational individuals out there. And unfortunately, even if you are a principled person, by the time it seems like by the time you get to Congress, you have to toe the line and your party's rhetoric becomes your own, um, regardless of whether or not you know you have to, whether or not you sort of subscribe to everything individually. I think we'll we you see it, you can see it more at the local level where you know Massachusetts Republican governor whatever has a little bit of yeah Republican in name <laughs> governor, sure. Um, but it has some nuances there. Like you can be a little bit more in one direction or another. But once you get to the national stage, it's like you better figure it out and. I think what we're hoping to do here is is try and figure out some of like the the driving forces that don't actually get you to the extremes, um, but are parts of the you know things that shape the way that we view the world and the way that we understand um, what what we kind of hope to see uh, in the future. I think. Yeah, I think that that was a really good point about people just like not looking at their candidates for elected officials and being like, I don't like either of those people, right? I mean, 2016 was a classic example and you're seeing it also in, in 2020, right? And so people look and say, well, I don't like her. I don't like him. I'm not voting. Yeah. And unfortunately what that drives is, you know, the people that vote are those people in the zero to 20, 80 to hundred. And so you just yeah. get more and more candidates like that who, if those are your voters, that's who you're appealing to. Like, right. And even having run or having been a part of campaigns, like primary campaigns, primary campaigns are races to the left and races to the right, right? And so you just, you end up appealing to this hardcore base. And by the time you get to the general election, you have people that are just so far apart. Um, and we'll get in more into, you know, the current presidential election, but, you know, there has to be, you know, in order for us to have hope, there ha- there has to be a way to get 
people who are normal seem in the middle people into positions of power and like that's currently that's clearly not possible (laughs) certainly i don't think we're solving that problem like here today but i mean you know a lot of the rhetoric in the media lately has been like get the conversation going and i think that's yeah you know the goal yeah goal here absolutely and i think when we think about the end goal behind like voting is you know to get your candidates elected but in reality, it can't be it can't end there with your candidate being elected. I think that's something that as I've gotten older, I've definitely had to learn. I mean, as a like bright eyed and bushy tailed college student voting for Obama in 2008, once he got elected, I was like, it's done. Yeah. I'm good. Every, you know, the world is Hope great. There's yeah. no racism anymore, like all this stuff. And we've we've figured it out. Um and obviously that was naive, Part partly the experiences of a college student who really hasn't struggled too much in life, like lead, led me to believe that we had like a, you know, fairy tale happy ending right there. But <clears throat> the reality is for anybody, your work can never be done when your candidate gets elected. It has to be uh, an ongoing thing to, to evolve that more perfect union, but also recognizing that presidential elections come down to 51% to 49% or like 50 and a half percent, right? So that means that you've got basically half the country is against everything that you are for. And so it cannot just be that, all right, we're in power. Let's ramrod through everything that we can do without getting anybody else to see the, the benefits. Like if we have something that's good and we really believe in it, we shouldn't stop at just like, I will never be able to convince this person that this is good. It has to be a slow process. And I think this is where our moderation comes in is that we believe in incremental change, both to the right and to the left. I think it is what you're going to hear a lot of um, in this in this podcast, we hope. But I think it does not mean that we don't have principles and we do not believe in certain things um it just it just understands that if you can't change someone's mind you know calling them a name or telling them they're never going to get it as much as i like to do that (laughs) is unfortunately uh you know explicitly counterproductive so um i think that that's uh that's something that we'll we'll hope to do here um Just a chance that maybe we'll find better days Cause I don't need boxes wrapped in strings And design a love and empty things Just a chance that maybe we'll find better days So we're Recording this on Thursday, August 27th, and the Republican National Convention is wrapping up tonight with President Trump's acceptance speech, and obviously we had the Democratic Convention last week, and 
So we haven't heard President Trump's speech tonight, but I saw an excerpt from it today that I want to read to you. Uh, And I think this is very indicative of what we've heard over the last two weeks. So apparently, and I'm sure this is subject to change, but this was, this is an excerpt from President Trump's speech. Quote, at no time before have voters faced a clearer choice between two parties, two visions, two philosophies, or two agendas. We have spent the last four years reversing the damage Joe Biden inflicted over the last 47 years. At the Democrat convention, you barely heard a word about their agenda. But that's not because they don't have one. It's because their agenda is the most extreme set of proposals ever put forward by a major party nominee. So you're just laughing, you know, you're just laughing listening to it. But I think that is a good summation of kind of where we are and what we've heard over the last two weeks. So your take on that and how that relates to the bigger picture of what we've seen and heard in the conventions. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to listen to these things and just not like not chuckle to myself and think that this is the most absurd stuff. I mean, so starting with the premise that these are the two most leftist radical politicians ever to, you know, be nominees for uh, the major political party is, you know, quite frankly, insane for most leftist circles. Kamala Harris is pretty moderate. Joe Biden is, I mean, you know, pro-segregationist from the 70s. Like, you, I, you know, all right, so I say that tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, there there are far more progressive candidates out there that obviously did not make the major party ticket. Um, he was objectively the most centrist out of all of the Democrats' major nominees. 100%, I think, which is why, uh, you know, the, the other nominees coalesced around him. The other ones who were sort of running kind of against the Bernie progressive... Uh, you know, ultra progressive left. I mean, I say ultra progressive, not entirely. But anyways, the um, the idea, though, in both of these conventions was really and I mean, it's obvious and it's kind of beating everybody over the head is that if if the other side wins, the world is over. Right. Um, the the thing to me, which is interesting about this speech is that I feel like it comes up every four years. Like going back to when I kind of started. It's gotten way worse. It's got, it's yeah. certainly gotten worse, but the idea, yes. I, all right. I'll say once we stopped being even moderately cordial and took all of sort of the polit quote unquote political correctness out of politics sure it became like this person is is now satan as opposed to like he you know he he, he's gonna move us to russia or something um but that idea that that whoever you vote for is going to fundamentally alter the american life um is a very interesting concept which i i think in certain ways if definitely fires up the base that's like this is the election of my life and we have to do everything we that's can that's what i say every four years it's right the biggest election of your life <laughs> right right i mean in many ways this past four years has been um very dramatically different from other administrations if only so far as that like people are paying a lot more attention um politicians i mean throughout history we go back into political decisions that have had major ramifications on a number of aspects of society. I mean, now we're teasing out what the crime bill actually did to America, right? But when these things happened, they sort of got passed and people were, you know, cheering about them without really unraveling the consequences. And what's happening now is everything is happening in this like hyperspeed 
where it feels like as soon as the legislation was passed, we're already talking about the doomsday consequences that are coming out of it. A lot of that has to do with with the fact that Trump is not a politician, um, and so he doesn't do things in that traditional way that really gets things kind of under the rug and gets people to shake hands about stuff. It's a lot more, you know, bull in the china shop, and everybody is like, there's a bull in the china shop, and the china shop's like breaking down. <laughs> yeah, I think, and Trump's become famous for this in the last four years of painting like apop- apoc. Apocalyptic. 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 Easy for me to say. Uh, we'll cut that. Uh, uh, apocalyptic. There we go. Nailed it. Uh, apocalyptic visions of the United States. Like his his inauguration inaugural address was you know really famous for what a dark picture painted of the United States. But you know to your point of like people see there's a bull in a china shop instead of like trying to get that bull out with like people it feels just as like more bulls rushing in right and and now. Not Biden in particular, but from the left last week, we kind of hear an apocalyptic version of if Trump wins again, this country is doomed. And, you know, Trump's been consistently, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, if the left wins, this country is doomed. And to our point earlier that there's almost no way that, you know, come January 21st or whatever, that the other side is going to buy into that, right? If you say that your candidate, the person that you're going to go vote for is going to ruin the country and then that person loses, this, you're not going to get the 49% arc and all of a sudden be like, all right, it's rosy, right? If, if yeah. you've been preached to from both sides that like your side is evil and the devil is going to ruin this country, then how do you come back You know, January 21st from that? And I don't necessarily disagree with either. Like, you know, from the left's perspective, Trump wins again. You know, this is a disaster. From, you know, the right, you know, the radical left wins and this is a disaster. So, like, I understand where they're coming from, but this rhetoric is... is uh, I mean, divisive is such a poor word for it, but it, it just makes it impossible to come back and, and work together after. Right, right. There is no proverbial crossing the aisle if you've basically said that the other person is doing things in... I, I mean, all right, so I think I think the main thing that we've always, or maybe prior to... I'm not even sure if prior to the Trump. I think there was some sort of insidious nature to... Obama's re-election in 2012, but in general, we've tried to paint the intentions of the other person as, okay, like, we understand, but we just think that what you're doing is actually counterproductive, or it's just not going to achieve the goals that you state. Like, we agree on the goals, kind of, um, in moving the country forward, but I might say free market, where you say extra regulation, or, you know, whatever it is. You value, you know, freedom a little more or i value right uh justice more right like those are two equally you know admirable values right. we just kind of weigh them differently and that's fine and right. like to that point i don't know maybe we were younger obviously and weren't as in tune to all the rhetoric but and maybe this is just rose-colored glasses given the current state of affairs but it didn't feel like you know bush gore bush Kerry, mccain obama like Again, we were young, but those felt like, hey, this is just a disagreement of ideas here, right? Yeah. And it very much doesn't feel that way anymore. No. No. I mean, <clears throat> it is it is interesting uh, to hear. So I think the things that elicit the biggest chuckles for me are when um, I, think it was, I think it was Pence's speech I was listening to yesterday when he essentially talks a lot about freedom 
Um, and I think we'll probably have to come back to this subject, but I think, and I'm not entirely sure this is the right way to get at my point here, but I, th- I think what I'm hearing a lot of in protest movements like the Black Lives Matter movement is that when Republicans talk about freedom, they're not talking about freedom for everybody. And so I wonder when you hear those words, do they ring hollow to you as well? It, even if insofar as it's potentially just an exaggeration of what we're trying to do um, as a party, as a whatever. But I hear them and I immediately go, this is ab- like it's it's almost absurd. But I wonder um, when you hear those words, what is what does that mean to you? It's absurd in this sense of this administration. And it's just totally, in my opinion, completely hypocritical to everything they've done over the last four years. I think Pence is a more traditional Republican and freedom is a very you know traditionally Republican value. And so I'm not shocked that Pence is trying to bring it back there. And I'm sure in some sense he's looking to Pence 2024, right, of like trying to restore some sense of normalcy to the Republican Party. So yeah, it's, it's hypocritical coming out of an administration that has clamp down on many freedoms for many different people. Uh, but I, I think how Republicans and Democrats interpret freedom in general is slightly different and is probably a longer conversation that you know, we can have down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think that that's, I think that that's really what happens in these conventions when, I mean, first I don't, I, I could barely watch the Republican convention. I almost could barely watch the Democratic National Convention, problem, honestly. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I, I I texted you this. That the first thing that I liked about it is that there were no people to clap every, like, two seconds at the nonsense. Like, <laughs> saying nothing and doing nothing and just getting up and getting standing ovations for it was absolutely mind-boggling. But um, but I think that that is that's, – that's really what we've gotten so far away from is – the balance of personal freedom and um, kind of a, a, a more activist government that is trying to to kind of ensure great in many great ways. conversation to have. Yeah. You know, let's have that debate yeah. at some point. But right. to your point, that debate is not happening. You can't <laughs> like that, yeah. because the idea yeah. is not that we think about freedom differently. It's that I stand for freedom and you stand for shackles or something. <laughs> Social right? Socialism, yeah. communism. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was it was a funny point that like the Republicans were out there in their beautiful red regalia, which is like. Might as well toss up the hammer and sickle and see what they look nonsense. like out there. Now we're just getting nonsensical. All right, we're going to wrap this, but uh, I want to do this every week. What do you think the odds are for the election? What chance do you give Biden to win at this point, August 27th? At, I mean, at this point, um, like, for me, it's 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 still definitely a toss-up. When I look... I toss-up, like, 50-50? I would, I would say it's it's 50-50. I think wow. in in both... I, I mean, I think the biggest thing is that Biden is not nearly as polarizing for other people that as Hillary Clinton was. He certainly will continue to get painted as this person who um, is really just a you know a body that the Democrats are, are putting forward. That is not totally untrue. <laughs> All right, so yeah, I mean, I, I think you could you can certainly make that argument um, that he doesn't have a huge policy core. Um, but he's kind of just standing at the front. But I think, 
you know, his the thing he's got going for him is that he seems like a decent person and he doesn't say crazy things. And honestly, you call him Sleepy Joe Biden, but hopefully he sleeps through the night and doesn't tweet at people from like 2 a.m. in the toilet, right? Like these are things that I think a lot of people are looking forward to um, in a Biden, Biden presidency. And I, I talked about this a little bit, or we've had this discussion where like if we could just hit pause on the whole thing, that would be great. While we like sort out like, hey, we've come really far apart, but there is like a lot here that, you know, that push and pull is necessary in many ways. And we can't do that because we're at we're at opposite ends. And Biden, I think, provides the best opportunity for that. Um, but I would say it's I mean, a toss up. I mean, where are you at? What a long way to say it's a toss up. <laughs> I this is my problem. I no, have a I, long I, way to say everything. I think that I would give Biden like a, a 65 35 edge at this point. So that's where I am. So and so wait, we'll, we'll we'll wrap we'll wrap that right. here and we'll come back to this every week and see. I'm surprised that you put it so low, but I think I think that's probably closer to realistic than what many people out there are thinking. house on the coast took a mind off St. Louis. Bill was the heir to the Standard Oil name and money. And the town said, how did a middle class divorce they do it? The wedding was charming if a little gauche. There's only so far new money goes. They picked out a Tasteful if a little loud The doctor had told him to settle down It must have been her fault his heart gave out And they said There goes the last great American dynasty Cut it. Alright, so I think the next thing that we're going to touch on here is the the Massachusetts Senate race between Joe Kennedy and Ed Markey. Um, sadly, as a as a left leaning liberal, it's one that I haven't um, been following too much on, but it's one that that you've been pretty interested in. Well, I think it's just a fascinating race. So the primary is this Tuesday, and I don't know. I just obviously Kennedy saw what happened two years ago. Two years ago, right? He sees. You know, AOC and here in our backyard, you know, um, Ayanna Presley unseats Mike Capuano, a long-serving, well-respected Democrat. Presley comes in, you know, sweeps him out of office and becomes, you know, somewhat of a national star, right? And so I think that had to inspire Kennedy to kind of break the norms here and, and say, like, all right, I'm going to go challenge a sitting Democrat as a Democrat for office. I was shocked when he, he declared and... That was probably, what, like a year, year and a half ago. And I'm even more shocked now, like now that we're actually at the end of this race, because, you know, Kennedy came out and he had the name recognition, obviously. That means it's, it's royalty here in Massachusetts. Um, and he jumped out to a big lead immediately. Uh, but now, if you look at polls in the last week, you know, Markey's ahead. And it's just, you know, having watched the debates and seen, you know, some interviews with them, it's, uh, I can't believe that Kennedy did it, honestly. And 
uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts about him like popping into this race, but to go after one of the most progressive Democrats in the Senate is is really shocking. It's it's it doesn't really make sense other than the fact that I think he's eyeing what the Massachusetts Senate picture might look like um, at the end of six years from now. So a big tagline that he has is like, I'm fighting for this generation and the next, right, one, which vision. is like, yeah, right. I'm going to be here for a while. Right. Ed Markey's on his way out. He's old. He's been here a long time and I'm here. But policy wise, I mean, what does he bring to the table that's any different? You've got one of the longest sitting senators in the country in Ed Markey. I mean, he's been around for, a, oh, sorry, he hasn't been in the Senate as long, but he's been around for a long, long time. Um, and he he ticks off all the progressive boxes, you know, sponsor on the Green New Deal, like a, a lot, a lot of things that really there's very little differentiation between Kennedy and Markey in this race. And what I think is is that if Ke- Kennedy's looking at in six years, Presley might be looking at this Senate seat when Markey steps down and he probably endorses her for this seat. And Kennedy's thinking, I if I'm going to get in, this is a good shot. Yeah, and I totally agree. It's it's a it's a move for Joe Kennedy, right? This yeah. isn't a move for Massachusetts no. or the United States in general. This is a move to secure his, you know, political standing and legacy. You know, Markey's been like you alluded to, you know, in the Senate since I mean in the in Congress since 1976. He took uh when Kerry got appointed Secretary of State in 2013. Right, Markey Markey won spot. his seat. He won mm-hmm. over actually uh Steve Lynch from here in Southie. Who I worked for back in the day and really liked, um, so I was disappointed with that. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, but Marky, like to your, your history to, of losing campaigns. <laughs> uh, to your point, though, is that Marky, you know, as a someone who's truly progressive, Marky has checked all of the boxes that you need to. And Kennedy's whole thing is like new voices, but like AOC's commercial addresses that head on you know it's not about you know younger newer voices it's about your true being like a true progressive if you're on the left that's what you want and i think in a primary you know kennedy's been dragged farther to the left than i think he really is or wants to go but that's we talked about this earlier this is what happens in primaries right so i I mean i wouldn't be shocked at all to see marky win and then what does kennedy do from there Right. Like that's I mean, it's a huge that's why that's why I keep coming back to this word shocking. It's just a huge chance he took. He, there was, he was going nowhere in Congress. And I mean that in a good way. Yeah. He like he, he that was his spot. seat for as long as he wanted. Yep. He could take any shot he wanted down the road at a mm-hmm. Senate seat. Right. He could have sat around, hope Biden wins, put Warren in a cabinet position and just walk into that seat. Yep. Right. But to challenge, I, I just I can't get over that. And even yeah. the. Watching the campaign, you know, you have AOC, who's now become, you know, the face, you know, kind of Bernie Sanders light, Bernie Sanders Jr. Uh, of the left, cutting a, a ad for Markey. And then you have Pelosi coming out and endorsing Kennedy. I think Pelosi just hates AOC. <laughs> I think that was like part of her motivation. Yeah, yeah. But it's there, there are like heavyweights on both sides of the party coming in on this. And, you know, coming back to that point, like, this is a, you know, this is a move for Joe Kennedy. But it's I I'm fascinated to see how this plays out because it, I think it has long-term ramifications. Yeah. I mean, it, it is fitting in the trend of um, the recent politics where kind of younger upstarts are, are like, time to take my shot. Which is a good thing in general, I think. It is a good thing in general, but I wonder if guys like Pete Buttigieg or uh, Beto O'Rourke did 
themselves a disservice. I don't think Buttigieg might have. I think he really raised his profile, but Beto O'Rourke in losing, you know, handily in the primary, obviously, but also losing that Senate seat against Cruz, I think he really did himself a disservice where as a speaker and as like a likable guy and as a potential rising star, whatever, in the Democratic Party, I think if he had sort of navigated, stayed in his lane a little bit better, built up a resume that actually, you know, backs up a lot of these policy ideas, I think he would have had a much better shot. But now I look at him as, you know, the... And it's and it's potentially a shame of American politics, but you think about like he's a guy that's not winning, um, and <clears throat> I think similarly for for Joe Kennedy, um, it, it it seems just it like you said like a mistaken like a mistaken step. I also wonder about the idea of like a progressive going after another progressive senator seat. It's like what are we doing if we're looking to bring our message and our values. If you see somebody that's doing what you want to do, why would you go after his seat? Yeah, I mean, we're going to keep you know, hitting that point over and over again. It's, yeah, it's, it's baffling. Um, obviously, if he wins, it's all right. good, right? Like, right. you're in the Senate. Right. So I think, like, as a, you know, if you're a true progressive, you should vote and vote for Markey. And you said you already voted, you voted for Markey. Yeah. Right, and while you said you haven't paid too much attention, your reasoning is pretty much that. Like, he's... He's done everything I could have wanted him to do, right? So I think if you're a true progressive, you go vote for Markey. I think if you're kind of a middle-of-the-road Democrat, I think that's who Kennedy really is at his core, despite what he's been kind of forced into saying over these mm. last few months. I think then if you're more of a centrist, Biden-type Democrat, Kennedy's your guy. I think if you're on the right side like me, Markey's still probably your guy. Like, I might pull a Democratic ballot and vote for Markey. If Kennedy gets that seat, that's his seat for as long as he wants it. <laughs> like, no one's going to step up and challenge a 39-year-old Kennedy here in Massachusetts, right? right? Like, Pressy will wait until Warren's seat's open, yeah. right? Yeah. But and whoever else is up and coming will go for those seats. But, you know, that's Kennedy's seat for the long haul, and I don't know so I know that I want that. With that said, I want to tell a personal Joe Kennedy story. I actually really like Joe Kennedy and have met him before. Uh, I will say that... You know, Markey, this article came out, you know, a few weeks ago that Markey of all the Massachusetts delegation has spent the least time in Massachusetts over the last, you know, two years, which is totally like a legitimate, you know, criticism. He's been in Washington for 44 years. He, he spends not much time in his district. Those legitimate criticisms, right, if you're really serving your constituents as opposed to just serving like a broader progressive agenda. Um, and Kennedy's been around. When I was teaching in East Boston, uh, there was the charter school debate a few years back, and we had kids write to like all elected officials, you know, city, state, uh, federal, all officials. And Kennedy, who was a congressman at the time, came in and spoke to a bunch of sixth grade kids and like took all of their questions and, and spoke to them in language they could understand, but as like almost like equals. Uh, and I was just like super impressed with him as a person. And I know even following his campaign, he's been very much out there in the district. And I respect how he's campaigned a lot. So I know I've been kind of like bashing Kennedy and I, I don't mean to, I just, I don't know why he took this shot. Yeah. And as a, as a Democrat, I would be furious, but I like him personally. You know, I think he's yeah. like a good person and he, someone that I think is kind of the Democrat that I'd want to be in like a centrist Democrat that would work across the aisle. So I like Kennedy personally. I don't know who I want to win for like, I have like varying yeah. motivations, um, motivations here, yeah. here, right? Like, Kennedy gets in, he's in for the long haul, which isn't great for someone on the right, but he's also better, in my opinion, than Markey on the left. So. Yeah, he's got a lot of uh, he's got a lot of ambition, so maybe it wouldn't be for for life, but uh, to be determined, I suppose. 
living in that 21st century Doing something mean to it Do it better than anybody you ever seen Do it screams from the haters Got a nice ring to it I guess every superhero need his theme music No one man should have all that power The clock's ticking, I just count the hours Stop tripping, I'm tripping off the power Broken, the school's closed, the prison's open We ain't got nothing to lose, motherfucker, we rollin' Huh? Motherfucker, we rollin' With some light-skinned girls and some Kelly Rollins In this white man world, we the ones chosen So goodnight, cool world, I see you in the morning Huh? I see you in the morning This is way too much, I need a moment Alright, so we definitely can't close this week without talking a little bit about um, the the strike essentially in the in the NBA where the Milwaukee Bucks decided not to take the floor and that sort of cascaded or, or precipitated essentially a broader shutdown of the NBA at the bubble in Orlando um, obviously these you know what happened was precipitated by another um, shooting of a ostensibly unarmed black man. All right, we'll, we'll potentially the debate, first, yeah, debate yeah, yeah. The, the... Right, potentially there's more to be learned about the uh, story, but again, a viral video of... A black man getting shot a black in the back man getting in front shot of his in the back, like, in Those are facts, children, right? Like, right? We can, there'll be other facts to come out, yeah. but I mean, that's a, those are established. Those are the indisputables. Um, obviously led to rioting, but I think... <clears throat> Not, not to say that, that the riding doesn't deserve its own airtime, but I think something unique about this um, is, a, is the broader shutdown in the sports world. Um, I, I think um, I have my feelings on it. I think, I think it's probably better to start, start with yours. <clears throat> yeah, we're sitting here on a Thursday night and you know, there's no NBA, there's no NHL, there's, you know, I know WNBA is not playing, there are a few MLB games, so it's, it's historic. I mean, you can't not talk about it, right? And I think that's the point. That's what the NBA, who started this and these other leagues, want is for us to at least have these conversations as opposed to shutting out everything that's going on in the world and turning on sports as a distraction like we have for, you know, 30 years in our races, right? right? And uh, so I think in that sense, I get it. And it, they've been successful in that. And I I totally respect what they're doing. They have this platform and you know, they're young people just like us trying to figure out what to do with that platform. And when going out and playing and putting on a show for a bunch of people doesn't feel right to them, then, you know, I, I have a ton of respect for them not playing. I think, or I guess I wonder what their hope is beyond continuing this conversation. So, you know, we all take this Thursday and hopefully some people in their houses have these conversations about what's going on in the world and what people think. But then everyone goes back to playing on Friday and and what, right? Like the whole news over the last 24 hours was, you know, the NBA boy is going to, you know, not play today, you know, not play last night. this weekend. But they voted to continue this season, right? And I... I'm glad that they are. I'm ha- like very much happy that they, on a, from a selfish level, I'm happy that they are. But I'm, I don't know. I, I don't look to athletes for answers, and I certainly don't expect them to have all the answers. But I don't know, you know, what they hope to accomplish by this, and I don't know that there is anything to accomplish by it. So it, it's historic, and we need to talk about it. But ultimately, is it is it going to do anything? I I don't think so. So. Maybe I can 
bring this back to a question that that I I really haven't kind of looked into how the other side reads this particular act. Um, but kind of what are conservative media outlets saying? Like how are how is this being portrayed on the right? Is it like the selfish? You know, these rich boy NBA guys are just, you know, doing something for attention or what is um, how are they reading this particular act of sort of resistance? Oh, I think there's multiple strains, um, none of which are particularly positive, Uh, but there are strains of these people are athletes. We don't pay them for their opinions, right? The classic Laurie Ingram, like shut up and dribble type Mm -hmm. thing, right? Like you guys are getting paid millions of dollars to play a game, go play a game. Um, And I think there's there's and then there's a segment that are going to swear off leagues right like kind of like how when people started kneeling in the nfl and say i'm not watching the nfl anymore i'm not the nba i'm out i'm out in the nba i'm not watching anymore and you know to be honest I don't know how many hardcore Republicans are watching the NBA yeah, yeah. in general, right? Uh, I'm not, sorry, that's a gross generalization, but just saying that's probably not the core NBA fan base right there. There's not, in that Venn diagram, there's not a huge overlap. Uh, and then I think the most relevant criticism, which I still don't totally agree with, but I think is, you know, somewhat legitimate, is, you know, we had the China controversy earlier this year, right? Daryl Morey, GM of the Houston Rockets, tweets out, you know, in support of Hong Kong and all the injustices that are going on in China. There's no way we can do them. We can do them justice in a minute. Um, and LeBron was pretty much like, well, I'm not educated on that. Don't ask me. And is going to, because he's trying to protect his brand, he wants to go make millions in China. And the NBA does the same thing, right? They kowtow to China who are doing these terrible things. But now you're going to come take a stand because of this injustice. On the other hand, this is happening here in the United States. These are a league that's overwhelmingly black and are seeing people their age with kids just who are just like them. The difference is they have different jobs and different statures and are getting murdered out in the streets. Like, I don't know if you saw Doc Rivers' clip from yesterday. I mean, he's tearing up. It's, you know, it's hard not to tear up watching those videos, right? And this is a personal struggle. So, um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I certainly don't think it's, you know, my place or anybody's place um, as you know, white people to be to be judging, uh, you know, black athletes or black people in positions of power from handling this however they want. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, you were sort of alluding to like, what is kind of the end goal? Um, I mean, protesting in athletics has always been um, a way to really bring the struggle to ordinary people. Um, I think in, in many respects, like you said, we're able to shut off the real world and flip on our, our NBA game and say, you know, you know, these are the two struggles that I want to see. I want to see the Celtics and the Bucks, and that's it. Um, and, you know, I want to root for the Celtics and I don't need to think about all the other things that are going on. And that when sports and sports figures kind of throw that back in your face, um, it, I think it does have... Uh, an additional layer of reaching a certain group of people. Now, of course, <clears throat> you're going to have people who will say, well, this is not the guy to be the martyr on. Um, but, and then I think you'll also hear a lot of like, this is not the way to protest, which I think is is one of the things that I find interesting because those are the same people that are going to tell you, you shouldn't be burning, shouldn't be looting, um, but you also shouldn't be messing up my Saturday night watching the NBA. Like, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. And it's like, 
what you're what you're essentially saying is that you should just accept things the way that they are and you know you should stop saying that they're unfair because they're not unfair it just is what it is um and so i i think um and i mean i think i think the nba in particular because of the revenue sharing between the players and the owners it's a particularly powerful place to take that kind of stand because you're not doing it on somebody else's dime you're saying that my half share of the profits from uh, the viewing rights and all these other TV deals, commercials, whatever, I'm willing to give up because something is going on in this country that I don't feel comfortable just going about my business. So I think I think you know you see like go back to Muhammad Ali protesting the Vietnam War, and obviously when he did it, everyone was like, you know, screw that guy. He's not American. This is bullshit. Um, are we going to swear on this? Fuck it. Probably. Yeah. I mean, there's no way we're not. So, um, but the, I, th- I think that, you know, when you're, when you're reaching into your own pocket and I think, I think, yeah, to an extent in the China thing, but I, I feel like you hit the nail on the head. Like these are black athletes in America. I'm in many ways turning face and saying, you know, horrible things are happening in china why are you not doing about it it's like because horrible things are also happening here and we're not doing about it it's ridiculous it's like u.s writ large right like u.s criticizing everyone oftentimes rightly so for like human injustice in the world (laughs) people are just like look at your own backyard yeah (laughs) well i think this is going to be something that that i will bring up over and over again i think we talk about it a lot it's just that the these things are never mutually exclusive to say something about the U.S. and not say something about China does not necessarily That's hypocritical. Mean, it's not necessarily hypocritical. It's not. It's not. You can focus on issues. Everybody only totally. has a certain amount of time, right? Totally, right? But you can't be silent on, like, and, and refuse to acknowledge something like an injustice happening there and then be all in on something else, right? I think to, to focus on China and not focus on the United States would be incredibly hypocritical. And I think the opposite is true, too. And this is a bad conversation because it's not the point of this, right? Like, the point is that the athletes doing what they're doing are protesting how they want to and certainly should be allowed and encouraged to do that. All right. Well, I I will challenge you on the fact that I think this is a good conversation because I think one of the biggest issues is that we tend to see the other side as hypocritical always. I think you pointed out why. Like, in in, in, in a very easy segment, you can see that, like, one person is is saying this but not saying that which makes them hypocritical but the opposite is also true if you're going to talk about that and you're not talking about this then then potentially you're you're a hypocrite i would say i would argue that it is fair for nba players to say that like the black life is my experience and i know this well enough to make social commentary on it whereas like in like China is certainly doing some things that um, that we should all sort of pay more attention to and kind of like really try and understand what's going on. But it is very divorced from our own lives and it is subject to a lot of propaganda, right? Like in insofar as we in America particularly try and vilify China and what they're doing and certainly – I'm not trying to say they're not doing bad things, but we're doing bad things here too, right? So let's like let's not pretend that we can throw stones and not live in a glass house kind of thing, right? So the it's really what's the magnitude, what's the degree of it, and where does it sort of stack in the priority of things that we need to be pointing out and dealing with? Right. This isn't. We're not going to sit here and do like an Olympics of 
you know, like injustice. Biggest grievance, right? right? Yeah, yeah, right. Sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. All those horrible things happening. Yes. That's not, not really a point. No. Um, I think, you know, I would hope that, and I think this is kind of protest writ large, is that it's good to bring attention, but it's also that this is a long-term thing, that you, you taking a day off your game tonight, you going out and marching in Wisconsin or in Boston tomorrow is not going to change anything come Monday. So this has to be kind of a longer term thing. And I wish more people would speak to that and understand that, you know, in Massachusetts, you know, voting day is Tuesday. That's how you make change. You vote and vote. Right. And protests are great to bring awareness to something. But if you really want to establish change, protests aren't going to do that. Right. You have to go and act with your vote, with your wallet, if you can, with, you know, with your voice, you know, speaking up and, and working for candidates or whatever. Right. And so I think that's kind of right. Rare. It, it can't be the only thing. Right. It cannot be the only and so thing. I, I, and I know that the NBA players don't think it's the only thing, or MLB, or NHL, whatever, but I would like to hear more of that speaking to it as opposed to like, all right, well, we're, we protested tonight, we took the night off. We, we made a point, fine, but there's, there's got to be more yeah. to that. And, and to a lot of their credit, they've been consistent since being back in the bubble. You know, I think really highly of Jalen Brown, um, who speaks to that and continues to come back to that and has put in the, the legwork, right? And so I think, you know, he's someone that, you know, yeah, pro, he's going to protest because it's part of it, but he's also going to put in the work, you know, with his feet, with his money, with his voice. And, uh, you know, from that sense, to your earlier point, you know, it's not anybody's job to tell people how to protest, but I do think people should understand that, you know, protesting is just the start. All right. Well, with that... We wrap our inaugural <laughs> episode of A Gentleman's Disagreement. I'm Ricky. I'm Brendan. And we'll see you next time.
Let's try. 